You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Good evening, everyone. My name is Leah, and I'm the president of the GMU Economics Society. On behalf of the Econ Society, thank you for coming out tonight. We'd also like to thank the Mercatus Center for co-sponsoring the event with us. We definitely would not have been able to do it without them. We're very fortunate and thankful to have Professor Deirdre Mikowski with us tonight. If you're interested in learning more about the Econ Society or joining our group, feel free to speak to me after the event. We're really interested in getting more members involved. We do a lot of um, events on economics and uh, teaching or studying um, what lessons you can draw from economics. One of the important messages tonight is actually why most economics can't explain the modern world, or rather, why non-Austrian economics can't explain the modern world. This is the concept highlighted in Bourgeois Dignity, Professor Mikowski's recently published second volume book of a <laughs> projected six-part series on the origins of the modern bourgeoisie. Professor Deirdre Mikowski is a distinguished professor of economics, history, English, and communication at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Trained at Harvard as an economist, she has written 14 books and edited seven more, and published some 360 articles on economic theory, economic history, philosophy, rhetoric, feminism, ethics, and law. Her recent work has focused on the rhetoric and ethics that underline economic activity, as well as close and critical reassessment of economic and statistical methods. We are so thankful to have Professor Deirdre Mikowski present her brilliant scholarly work tonight. And without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to Professor Mikowski. I'm very pleased to be here because George, George Mason is in some ways the center of my intellectual universe. Honestly, it is. You uh, um, students here, whether undergraduates or graduate students, are pri privileged to be at what I consider the best economics department in the world. Now, there are others with higher uh, rankings, but you know, rankings are done by fallible people. And uh, Princeton and, and Harvard and Chicago have much less imagination and scholarly range than, uh, than George Mason. I'm an Economist by true training, as you heard, indeed, I'm a Samuelsonian economist. You may not know what that is. Some people call it neoclassical, but that's uh, historical inaccuracy. Neoclassical economics was the discovery by Valras and, uh, um, and, uh, and, and Menger and Jevons and Marshall in the 1870s that, now hear what I say, 
that economics is about what goes on between our ears. You may think that economics is about the material world, but you've also been taught that economics is about the future. It's about not allocating fixed costs. It's about thinking of the past as gone and making decisions at how far am I going to walk, marginal benefit equals marginal cost, just here, and I stop. It's about the future economics. It's about expectations. It's our conception of the um, uh, um, future. Whereas earlier economists, uh, Marx or uh, Adam Smith, um, thought, thought in terms of, um, uh, of the labor content of goods. What was discovered in the 1870s is that it's subjective value all the way down. Cost is merely the opportunity cost of not doing one thing because you decided to do the other, right? The opportunity cost in um, uh, utils, perhaps, um, but your internal utils. So economics, in a way, ought to be, strangely, a non-materialist subject. Just because we're economists doesn't mean we have to be historical materialists. We certainly don't have to be Marxists, although some of my, my, my best friends are Marxists, alas, the poor souls. Um, and we, but we don't have to be the bourgeois equivalent of materialists. We don't need to think that everything's about money or that everything's about the production and consumption of physical goods. Indeed, we're encouraged by these neoclassical economists to think, I, I don't want to call it idealism because that suggests it's got something to do with Hegel or, or that, that crowd. So it's not that. It's that it's well, I have a, my own word for it is the conjective. You can't know what's in another person's mind or heart. Not really. No one in this room can be sure that the person next to them experiences the color red the same way they do, or he or she does. You, you just can't know that. And you can't know objectively, if what you mean by that is God's view of the chair or the light. We, 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 we humans can't do either of those, not the subjective or the objective, at least in the extreme metaphysical way that people think about those. But we can do the conjective, which is my coinage from Latin, thrown together. We can talk about what we talk about. 
In the English department, we do a lot of that. We, we talk about talk, about poems and texts. And I'm urging you this evening in thinking about even something as material sounding as economic history to reach for what I would call humanomics. Not freakonomics, thank you very much. Not eugenonomics. Not, not economics as not this Samuelsonian economics in, in the, um, the, 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 the term comes from the great um, Paul Anthony Samuelson. One of the two Nobel Prize winners who graduated from Gary, Indiana High School. The other one is Joe um, Stiglitz. Um, and it's, it's the kind that's a formalization, a mathematical formalization, of Marshallian economics, of, that's a descendant of these ne ne neoclassical people of the 1870s. Um, but Paul, who, by the way, was my mom's mixed doubles tennis partner, um, though, a, though a fine man, insisted that we look at economics as entirely allocation under constraints. That's, that's the standard definition of economics, the handling of scarcity, allocation, marginal benefit, marginal cost. And I'm saying that those terms, marginal benefit, marginal cost, that sound so material and mathematical are in fact figments. That doesn't make them stupid or unnecessary, or, but it makes them about people's conjective experience of each other's talk and the conversation that goes on in their head. Now, hold on to that word and that idea of humanomics, and we'll do some economic history. My original scientific field is the study of past societies, not past economists. That's called the history of economic thought. And although I love dead people, um, I love all of them. I don't just love the economists. So I, I, I and, and the more dead they are, the more I love them. <laughs> um, so I get really excited about Assyriology finding markets and prices 2000 BCE. That just thrills me. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the widespread, the, the widespread, let me emphasize it correctly, of, of our race. We're all the same race. It's called, uh, called the human race. We're all, by, by the way, everyone in this, this audience is an African. You understand that? We all came out of Africa. Uh, most of the people in this room, their ancestors went to, went to Russia and turned left. And some people went to Russia and turned right, or went and 
Some of them stayed in Africa, and that's who we are. Okay, let's start with that event, which happens around 50,000 BCE. So here we are. This is 50,000 BCE. Back of that is the invention of language. There are various indicators of a symbolic way of life. This conjective, indeed, that I'm speaking of. For example, ornamentation or um, uh, um, traces of ochre, which is red, body paint, which you can find in, in archaeological digs. And that goes way back in Africa. There they are in Africa. And they're starting to paint themselves and put on uh, shell bracelets and, and dance around. It's, by the way, it's, 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 it's women who in, in invented language, which is obvious even to this day. <laughs> OK, so here we are at 50,000 BCE. The wall over there is, is the present. Now, from then to 1800, income per head, income expenditure, first thing you learn in economics is that national income equals national expenditure equals national consumption. So income per head was $3 a day. $3 a day is a very low standard of living. There are still people in the world who live on $1 a day, and that's even lower. People who sleep on the streets of Calcutta are $1 a day people. But $3 is no, uh, as my mom, my 88-year-old mom, likes to say, in a very old expression, $3 a day is no bag of bluebirds. You know, I don't know what that means, but... <laughs> Apparently, bags of bluebirds are good things to have. And it ain't no um, bag of bluebirds. So watch. <coughs> Sorry, I had a terrible cold. $3 a day. I'm going to lean down as far as I can. It's about here, OK? Say, about six inches above the floor. Now I'm going to stand up so that my back doesn't die. So here we are, $3 a day, $3 a day, $3 a day. 25,000 years before uh, uh, the, the Common Era, um, ice all over the place. Uh, uh, let's see now, let's see. We're about 5,000, 8,000 years before the Common Era, invention of agriculture. Uh, the d domestication of plants and animals. Now watch, I have to get down. This, by the way, is a very precise scientific diagram. I mean, it's really accurate. I have an uncanny ability to exactly reproduce with my fingers how things went in history. So I'm, you know, don't try this at home. <laughs> we professional economic historians, but OK, here we go. It goes up because agriculture is a nicer way to, well, in some ways, a nicer way to live than, than hunter-gathering. But then it goes down again goes down again on Malthusian grounds. If hunter-gatherers or agriculturalists or manufacturers, for that matter, 
um, start making more than $3 a day, population increases. More children survive. Um, the fertility of, uh, of women is higher when they're not starving. Uh, on, on all kinds of biological grounds, $3 a day, roughly, plus or minus $2. $5 is not a bag of bluebirds either. Um, considering tried to live in Fairfax on $3 a day. Imagine it. What's that? Th three quarters of a cappuccino? Maybe. Nothing else. No clothing, no shelter, nothing else. So there's a homeostasis, as we, as we say when we're being fancy. There's an equilibrium. There's a Malthusian equilibrium of $3 a day. And so it goes. The rise of, uh, of, of China uh, in uh, uh, some hundreds of years be, before the Common Era, Rome, Greece, the, 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 the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome, none of these resulted in a permanent increase or in a large permanent increase in how much the average person had to eat. Then we get to 1800. Where is that? About here. We're still at $3 a day, $1 to $5 a day, say. And Parson Malthus figures out what's been happening all this time. He says, if, if the wages of labor, this is called the iron law of wages by the classical economists, the inventors of our economics, if, if the wage gets above $3 a day, more people breed and use goes back to $3 a day. And that, by the way, is the model that current environmentalists use. They believe that we're doomed by Malthusian forces to overpopulation and that increased population is bad for us, bad for all the, all the people. But almost as soon as he, he publishes the first edition of this book in 1798, history falsifies it. Because what happens to average income per head? In the countries that have embraced cap, what we call capitalism, I prefer to call it innovation, it goes like this, watch. It's like this. It goes up to, in the United States right now, about $125 a day for every man, woman, and child. It goes up to uh, $90 a day in present-day Japan. In the world as a whole, including sad cases like Chad and Bangladesh, which are still very, very poor um, for the most part. There are some exceptions even in Chad. It, 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 in, in the world as a whole, it goes up to $30 a day, which is a gigantic increase, a factor of 10. It had never, never happened before. Not even close. The modern world, of which this group is the beneficiary, is a completely unique historical event. Indeed, we have a technical term for this among economic historians. This is, this, is, this is serious stuff. 
We call it the hockey stick. <laughs> because there's a long handle. The, the uh, Canadian economic historians are especially inclined to this. <laughs> there's this long handle, and then at the very end, there's the sharp blade of the hockey stick, an ice hockey stick. Um, it's not like a field hockey stick that bends back. That wouldn't do. It, it, it goes up. Now, how are we going to go about explaining this? Now, if you've been trained in economics, and most of you have, you're going to think, well, let's see, we, we could do a capital accumulation. There's, there's something, as, as Adam Smith um, argued. Um, Capital accumulation is uh, the one of the causes, the one uh, of the natures and the causes of the wealth of nations. You make more factories, you make more roads, ships, sailing ships, and your income per head goes up. <clears throat> now, in this book that my host mentioned, which just came out available cheap on Amazon.com, a very fine book called Bourgeois Dignity, Why Economics Can't Explain the Modern World, I show that investment can't do it. Sheer piling brick on brick, or BA on BA, even this applies to human capital as much as to physical capital, can't come close to explaining the blade of the hockey stick. I mean, not even close. Look, we've got an increase of income per head, I said, from $3 to $120, $125 a day, a factor of about 40 And if you correctly allow for the quality of goods, it's higher, on the order of perhaps 100, a factor of 100. So we're a hundred times better off than our ancestors. Not a hundred times happier, alas. That's a separate matter. But we have a hundred times more scope to do what we want. To be a student at George Mason. To take a trip to France. To uh, have our MP3 player in our ear, or whatever. We have this gigantic increase in human possibilities. Now, of course, you can screw it up and spend your life um, on, uh, on, on, on beer and, uh, and, and, and cigarettes. That's, that's a possibility, but, but lots of people, like the people in this room, haven't, haven't, haven't taken that choice. So it's, it's way more than can be explained by investment. Because if, if you double the amount of capital that a person has in his, uh, his activity, say farming, then the increase in, um, in output is 100%, that's, that's the doubling, multiplied by the share of capital in total costs. Say the share of capital is 50%, or say 50%. So that's a 50% increase. Oh boy, that'll do it. No, it won't. We haven't got a 50% increase to explain, or a 100% increase, or a 300% increase. We've got anywhere from, let's say, 
to, say, 99% to explain. Understand? The percentage increase is enormous if income has gone up by a factor of 40 or 100. Right? Income per head. So we got a problem here because the economics that we've all been taught is the economics of scarcity, as I told you. It's about allocation, getting the allocation right. It's about rationality, as we say. And yet, going from being irrational to rational can't come close, in the economist sense of rational, can't come close to explaining the most important secular event in human history, which is the Industrial Revolution and its follow-on, what, what's happened in the last couple of centuries. So this, this, this is a big problem. Suppose you're a Marxist. I don't suppose there are too many here, but as I said, I'm very well disposed. I was once a Marxist myself, and that, that um, sometimes makes you symp sympathetic with Marxists. If you're a Marxist, you say it's exploitation that explains it. Aha! Now we got away. The bosses exploit the workers, and that's what caused the increase. This blade of the hockey stick. But that doesn't work either. In magnitude, it's too small. Because the way it works is through capital accumulation. The bosses rip great chunks of surplus value from you all, and then they invest it, the greedy bastards, and up goes total income. But as I just told you, <laughs> it doesn't work because investment can't explain it. In, let's take imperialism. Very common argument. Everyone, every educated person in the West, the North and West especially, feels vaguely guilty that she is rich because the Indians are poor. But that's not so. She's rich stealing from Indians, either American Indians or, or South Asians, is not a good business plan. Stealing from poor people is not how to make yourself rich, right? Would you become rich by, by uh, let's see, you could form a gang. These, these three people up front could form a gang and you would go attack homeless people and steal from them. Now, that's a good idea. That's, that, that's a good way to get rich. Have an empire over the homeless people in the neighborhood. And then, of course, your income would go up. Well, the hell it would. You, you'd get a lot of, you know, well, you know, let's not make fun of homeless people, but you, you'd get a lot of not very valuable stuff. And that's what actually happened. If you go back and look uh, at the history of the Raj in India or uh, the, the French uh, colonialism or Dutch, there just wasn't much gained by the average person. The king of Belgium, a very nasty man named, named Leopold in the late 19th century, um, got a piece of Africa, the Congo, as his empire, but it was his empire, not the Belgian people's empire, for one thing. All the profits from brutally exploiting the natives to collect rubber 
out in the uh, forest went right into Leopold's castles. <laughs> what good did that do the rest of the Belgians? The Belgians became comparatively rich in the 19th century by making steel and working in coal mines and the other ways that the, that the modern world has gotten rich. Could it be, let's see, in, and you can, you can go, go through these materialist explanations one by one, as I do in this wonderful book available on Amazon.com, um, and they all fail. Now you might say, well, suppose they all come together. Suppose that's what happened. Suppose there was imperialism, there was for trade, trade, foreign trade, that did it. Uh, uh, investment, exploitation, uh, blah, blah, blah. They all came together and that made the Industrial Revolution. But then you have to explain why all those small things came together in the 18th century. What, is it just kind of an accident? Maybe, that's, that's accident is always a live possibility. But it's, even if you add up all the little effects, and I do in the book, you don't get what you're looking for, which is this gigantic increase. So, okay, okay, I'm Deirdre. Stop telling us what didn't happen. Tell us what happened. Now, actually, you have to go to volume three over here and volume four to get the full story on what did happen. And then five and six, I might write, I'm not too sure. But I think, I think one, two, three, and four will make a great boxed set. <laughs> I will die happy if I have a boxed set like Harry Potter. <laughs> if I earn one hundredth of her royalties, I'll be really happy. But anyway, I'm going to have this. See, look, see, because they're, they're in the same design. Oh, <laughs> happiness is a boxed set, I'm telling you. But because this book is devoted mainly to showing what's wrong with the other theories. But I keep offering the alternative. And the alternative is this. Start with the claim that what made us rich was innovation, what the Austrians call discovery. We got rich, I mean, look around you. Look, we're, we're in a cave. <laughs> This is a cave. Most of our houses are just imitations of caves. And that doesn't sound like a very good idea. Except, look, there are electric lights. Electric lights. Not particularly a scientific invention, but an invention, nonetheless, of scientifically-minded inventors in Britain and the United States in the 19th century. The most famous you've heard of is, is Edison, but there are a bunch of others. Um, carpeting. Look at this marvelous, oh, it's such beautiful carpeting. I'm very, my, my, my breath is taken from me by how beautiful it is. <laughs> and look, there's not a seam from there to there. It's all an enormous piece of carpet. This carpet, when it was uh, woven in some mill, was thousands of feet long. How do you make th carpets thousands of feet long? Not with tiny little fingers. You make them with machines, fantastic machines. If you've ever been in a, in a textile mill, 
um, an old-fashioned kind, it's very loud, and the stuff is just coming out like mad. And that's a tremendous improvement over homespun. Whatever, whatever Mahatma Gandhi said, homespun is much worse than the industrial-made cloth. Cheap steel, that's a very big one. It occurred to a man named Henry Bessemer in 1854. He said to himself, gee, I wonder what would happen if you took boiling pig iron and blew air through it. <laughs> Henry sounds like a kind of a boyish guy. <laughs> he, he, he liked to see things blow up, I guess. Because that's what it does. It blows up. Like my friends when I was a kid who used to you know, have pipe bombs in the backyard. Anyway, it blows up. And what happens is that all the carbon goes out of the, out of the pig iron. Then you can add back a small amount of carbon to make what's known as steel. Steel is low carbon, but not zero carbon uh, uh, iron. That's all it is. And the modern world got, got the benefit. This, this is probably a steel frame, this, this building. And in any case, there's cheap, you know, this, is that plant, I guess that's steel. There's steel everywhere. And it's cheap, 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 cheap. Um, if you think that Andrew Carnegie, Carnegie was a bad guy, you're wrong. He made steel cheaply. The price of steel fell like a stone in the late 19th century and, and has continued to fall and fall and fall and fall. Reinforced concrete. There's a biggie. Combine a technology invented by the Romans and also by the Chinese, because everything was invented by the Chinese, honestly it was, and namely concrete and combine it with steel and you got reinforced concrete. And you can build 90-story uh, um, buildings. If you have an elevator, and the elevator depended on the cheap steel and depended on the, 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 the discovery, so to speak, of, not, not so to speak, the discovery of the, the electric motor, which depended some on science, Notice, by the way, I keep saying, I keep bringing science into it, but science was not the explanation. Science is not why we're rich. Science is more likely caused because we're rich. We're able to send lots of people to school, and they become chemists and engineers and, and biologists, and they invent more science. Most of the science that we know isn't ever going to be applied to anything. My favorite example is the passion of my youth, astronomy. As much as I admire astronomy, and I think it's great, and the high frontier, all that nonsense, um, uh, still it's completely useless. <laughs> Poetry is much more useful than astronomy. <laughs> and if there's a cost-benefit um, justification for, the, for NASA and for uh, academic astronomy, then there's a justification for subsidizing poets, and I'm all for that. Okay, so, so innovation is the key, not investment. The investment is, of course, necessary. You know, you can't make a steel plant or a railway without investment, without people abstaining from consumption or being exploited. I don't care where it comes from. In any case, it gets put into the railway or the steel mill, but 
the mar here let's speak in a, in a technical way. The marginal product, product of capital, as John Maynard Keynes famously said, could be driven down to zero in about a generation if there was no innovation. If there was no discovery going on, if there was no new stuff and, and new services, the invention of forward markets, the invention of, of corporations, the invention of this, the invention of that. That's what made us rich. Well, what made the invention? It's not easy to say, except that I think it, I, I'm, I will easily say, <laughs> that it's liberty and dignity for the inventive classes in society. Now, every human being is to some degree inventive. You know, it, I, 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 this morning I just figured out a new hairstyle for me. That was a discovery. Not exactly earth-shaking. It's not going to raise national income by, a, by a, in, um, 10,000 percent, but you know, for, in my little world, that's an improvement. So we're all inventive. We're, 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 we are creatures of habit, but we're also thinking up new ways to, to do things all the time. But the class that does most of the heavy, heavy lifting is your class, the bourgeoisie, the middle class. You people, you graduate from college, you're presumptively members of the middle class, whether you like it or not. You may say, oh, I'm, 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 I'm a working class girl, I, I'm not a member of the terrible bourgeois, exploiting bourgeoisie. Yes, you are. Uh, sorry, if you, can, if you hand back your sheepskin, then maybe you can go be a factory worker, but, but in any case, you're bourgeois. And it's the, this middle class, the, the merchants, the manufacturers, the, the inventors themselves, um, the, who, who, who make the innovations. It's the bankers. There, there's invention, which is just having an idea. Then there's innovation, which is actually making it happen. You can have the idea for the home computer if you're, if you're Steve Jobs, the, for the idea for the desktop computer. But if all you do is kind of walk around like a college professor, like we do, it's like, oh, gee, hmm, gee, a Mac, wouldn't that be nice? A Mac, what an interesting idea. Let me do a paper on that. I'll write, I'll write four to six books about, about, about the theory of Macdom and Mackiness and McBride. No, 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 no. Um, well, you then, it has to be obviously put into practice. And then I ask, well, why didn't it happen before? Because see, all those things that I attack in, in, in this book, they could have happened before and in other places. I said that China invented most everything, and that's actually true up to around 1700. In 1500, in 1492, no one would have picked Europe to be richer than China. That was an absurdity. The Chinese in 
1492 and even up to 1700 were much better at doing stuff. Chinese ships, they're called junks, but you mustn't be misled by the name, were, were vastly superior to the wooden ships of the Royal Navy in the 18th century. It's only when the Europeans started building iron-hulled vessels that they actually got much ahead of the Chinese. That we, we call China, China, right? China is called China. I don't mean the country, but the cup, the um, teacup. It's called China precisely because the Chinese had known for 2,000 years how to make porcelain, thin pottery, instead of the mugs that we all use now. Thin pottery, very light, and you could do your tea service. Okay? That had to be reverse engineered by Germans and French people and, and, uh, and English people in the late 17th, early 18th century. So everyone would have bet on China to be the place where it happened, or the Ottoman Empire, or the Arab world, or Rome, or Greece, or the Persian Empire, or wherever. So those routine explanations, the investment, exploitation kind of arguments that I talked about before, you know, people have been exploiting other people for a long time, believe me, class. This, this is not an unusual event to steal from other people. This had been going on for, for millennia, since the first caveman took a rock and knocked out his, his friend and stole his, uh, his, I don't know, his meat. Um, and investment had been going on. The Grand Canal in China was vastly superior to anything that, that the Europeans had, really, um, until the Suez Canal. Um, well, perhaps slightly earlier than the Suez Canal, but not much, late 18th century. So I have to, I, in order to make this case that it's innovation, there's got to be something peculiar about Northwestern Europe in the 17th and 18th century in the matter of liberty and dignity for innovators. And essentially, I claim that there was a unique, one time only, rise of human liberty in the 18th and especially in the 19th century. And along with that, and as a protector of that, the opinion that people had of other people rose. In a hierarchical society, if you're a peasant, sorry, you're a peasant for life, forget about it, that's it, you're a peasant, too bad. If you're a duke, good. If you're a peasant, bad. End of story. And all human societies, until the outbreak of this um, liberty in what you could call egalitarianism in the 18th and especially the 19th century, were hierarchical. I mean, all, all sort of after hunter-gatherers. There's a claim that hunter-gatherer societies are not hierarchical, are, are hierarchical but they're not going to have an industrial revolution, let's face it. Um, and as, as, as sweet as they are, 
they're not going to give large human scope. No one in a hunter-gatherer society is going to bother to learn to read, much less invent writing. Whereas agricultural societies that allow for, for cities with exploitative priests and aristocrats in charge, they do learn how to write. They, they learn how to write from accounting. Uh, accounting is the origin of, of literacy. So it could have happened before, maybe, except for this human, this, this uh, sociological and political change that I say was unique to Northwestern Europe. Holland, in particular, Nederland, was the originator of a bourgeois egalitarian society on a large scale. Now, by egalitarian, I don't mean like our egalitarian, not like mo the modern United States, where, where every American is, at least in sort of theory, in political theory, equal to every other. That's taken a long time even for Americans to achieve, right? The civil rights movement, the women's movement and so forth, the, the GLBT movement, yes, yes, um, pink power. Um, but, so it's, I'm not claiming that there was an egalitarian society completely in Holland in the 17th century, the 1600s, but it was a great change from societies at the time like France or England, which were not at all egalitarian. Think of Shakespeare. You've all read some Shakespeare. Th ask yourself, are there any bourgeois heroes in Shakespeare? There are none. Well, Antonio and the Merchant of Venice? I don't know. Antonio was a dope. He was a fool for love. He was in love with, with, with his friend, his friend Bassanio, who's the real hero. And Bassanio is a nobleman. And his view of uh, Antonio is that Antonio is a good person to go borrow from. And then the other bourgeois character in The Merchant of Venice is Shylock. And Shylock is not um, acclaimed, shall we say, in The Merchant of Venice. Yet, eventually, we get bourgeois heroes. Even in our high literature, and certainly in our, 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 our lowbrow literature. For instance, in India, in the 1950s and 60s, Bollywood, which produces more films than Hollywood, by the way, by a very large margin, Bollywood um, ground out films in which the bourgeoisie were the villains. And the heroes were policemen and government bureaucrats. Honestly, I'm not making this up. This is true. In the 70s and 80s, it started to switch. And by the late 80s, Bollywood was producing hundreds of movies in which innovators were the heroes. There was an ideological change in India, alas, not in Pakistan or in, um, in Bangladesh, but um, in India. 
1991, India gets an economist as a finance minister, a man named Singh, a, a very distinctive name, you know. Um, and the, he, he says, well, let's move to, to liberal economic principles. Let's honor business people and free them to some degree. And then India starts growing like mad, 7 to 8% a year per capita in real terms. In 1978, of all places, Maoist China <laughs> does the same thing. And then it starts growing like mad. In fact, it's probably because of Maoist China that the Indians finally said, wait a second, the Hindu rate of growth is not doing us any good. This 1% a year per capita is not going to solve many social problems. At 1% per year per capita, income, in, uh, uh, income doubles every 70 years only. If it's 2%, how long does it take to double? If something doubles at 1% in 70 years, how long does it take to double if you're going twice as fast, 2%? 35 years. If you're going 4%, it's 4 into, into 70, it's hard math. Um, uh, it, it, uh, it's, uh, what is it, uh, 17 and a half. If it's 8%, it, right? So Chinese and Indian social problems will be solved rather quickly if they don't revert to central planning and to shooting property developers. It turns out that if you shoot innovators, you don't get much innovation. I mean, I, I know that's a shocking, um, uh, uh, sort of amazing conclusion from economics, but if you, if you send capitalists to re-education camps and burden them with uh, uh, um, uh, corruption and, uh, and, and regulation. In Indian factories before 1991, hear this, this is very interesting. If you, the owner of the factory, now this is remarkable, wanted to move a machine inside the factory, you had to get permission of the government. You had to have an inspector come in and say, well, yep, yes, I, I think uh, that would be a good idea. Move the machine from there to there, and by the way, I'd like a bribe. That's how it was. So the same thing I'm claiming, as is now happening in India and China, happened in slow motion. You know those, those movies where they have a slow motion stuff, they go like this. Happened, it's that slow motion happening in places like Holland, then England, Scotland, Belgium, the, the, what became the United States, the Rhineland, blah, 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 blah. That caused the modern world. The most important economic story of our time, well, what do you suppose it is? It's not the Great Recession, as nasty as it was or even still is to some degree. That's not it. The important economic story is that first the Chinese, then the Indians, discovered what I'm saying in this book. 
Unfortunately, they discovered it decades before I did, so they get scientific credit for it. I don't. They discovered that honoring the middle class, not worshiping it, that in Abrahamic terms is idolatry. That's not a good thing. But acknowledging the virtues of the bourgeoisie, that, by the way, is the first book, which is in paperback and is really cheap on Amazon.com. Acknowledging that, the, that, that it's not a contradiction in terms to speak of the bourgeois virtues, that, that it's not just crazy, like speaking of criminal virtues or child molesters' virtues. No, it's not that. A society that adopts an, an admiring attitude towards, towards innovation, towards what uh, um, Schumpeter famously called creative destruction is going to succeed. And it's creative d destruction and, and, and the freedom to carry it out that makes the modern world. Think of music. Think of jazz. I'd prefer to think of jazz than, than, than your rock music, which I don't like. And Charlie Parker invented, he and some others, invented bebop, after, especially after the war, the, and our war is the Second World War. Um, and he, he made obsolete many jazz musicians of the age of swing. But the swing musician has made obsolete many um, jazz musicians of the age of Dixieland, and so forth. Artistic creativity is parallel to economic creativity. It works the same way. You, you, uh, um, your superior art, at least in the view of the, of the buyers of art or the, the, the connoisseurs of art, takes the place of the inferior earlier art. This is true in science. Einstein made a bunch of physicists really unhappy because they thought it ha they had it all worked out that the universe was um, Euclidean, right? Your high school geometry um, uh, in, uh, in its geometry. And it was, um, uh, let's see, it was you, eh, and Newtonian, F equals MA. And he said, no, it's not, in 1905. So a whole bunch of physicists were, so to speak, unemployed by Einstein. But that's how the world advances. That's, that's on the whole good news. It's bad news for the, for the, uh, for the, uh, the automobile was bad news for um, uh, uh, blacksmiths, right, who shoot horses. But it was good news for the rest of us. So it's, it's this ideological change, this ethical change, this political change, this sociological change that caused the economic change. And that's my claim, that, as I said, to be an economist, you don't need to be a materialist. You don't have to say, ah, economics explains everything. In this very important case of the hockey stick, economics doesn't explain 
what's mainly to be explained. Here's how I think of it, and I'll end here. Think of the tide, the tide moved by the moon and the sun and the gravity and the, the, the water sloshes around, and it comes up against the, um, the land. And if you've ever seen a tide coming in, it goes up, you know, that's called a tide, and it reaches into this inlet because there's a little um, sort of hole in the land and it reaches in there and it comes partway up the river. And depending on the microgeography of the bank or the sand, it goes here and there. And my claim about the history, the economic history of the modern world, is that the micro details of what happened are economic. They're matters of the relative price of labor and land in England versus the United States and so on. Those considerations are important, but it's the micro stuff. The tide itself hasn't been explained by economics. What are, so, some of you, I hope not too many, are t taking perhaps courses in growth theory which I regard as basically hocus-pocus, it's um, nonsense. Because the, the force that really makes the tide rise by a factor of anywhere from 40 to 100 is ideas, the human spirit, ethics, politics, the conjective. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.